Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be here, and especially want to say a word of thanks to Dave and the elders for giving me the opportunity to participate in this series. Um, we're looking at Matthew 2, and before the service, um, Alex asked me if I was a big fan of Christmas, and I told him I would answer that at the beginning of my message. So, Alex, you're going to be disappointed, I'm afraid, because I have to have an, start with an admission maybe a confession. Uh, Missy and I, often, my wife and I often say that our least spiritual month of the year is December. I don't know about you, but we feel like our spiritual life sort of gets crowded out with all the Christmas cheer, like coming up with gift lists. Uh, it's gotten so bad in our family that we actually have an app on our phone this year. Are any of you using that to keep track of all the family gifts? There's an app for that because it's so miserable. <laughs> um, or making travel plans, right? That's the nightmare before Christmas. And, and what about putting up the Christmas lights? Um, I'm sure that I have elves that live in my attic and no matter how hard I try to put them in the box the year before neatly so they're not tangled up in the year that I get out the elves start giggling as they watch me try to untangle the rat's nest and and you know what a spiritual event that is in your home right <laughs> so Christmas is actually a hard season of the year to be spiritual at least we find in our house. And then we come to these familiar passages of Scripture, and the danger is they're so familiar to us that they too become sort of part of the background noise of the season, like the carols playing in the department store. So we need the Lord's help this morning. Um, we need him to make himself larger in our hearts and minds and imaginations than all the noise of the season. So we need his help, so let's ask him for it. Lord, even as the prophet uh, Hosea has prayed, let us know, we ask together, let us press on to know you, Lord. For your going out is as certain as the dawn. And you have promised that you um, will be like spring rains that come down and water the earth. So do that for us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our, our text this morning is a short section from the Gospel of Matthew. We're working through Matthew 2 with an eye towards sort of the background passages in the Old Testament. And in this section of Matthew's gospel, it's, there's, there's a refrain that sounds throughout almost like the tolling of a bell on the hour. It's the refrain, this is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. This is to fulfill that. This is to fulfill that over and over again in Matthew 2. And you see it again here in our passage. Look at it with me in chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they, that is speaking of the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod 
is about to search for the child to destroy him. Remember how Herod said he wanted to find him to worship him. Not so much. And he rose, Joseph rose, and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. Now here's the tolling of the bell. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now that little phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, is taken from the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11. And if you, if you are a Bible skeptic here this morning, you might look at that and think, that's not such a great prophecy. I mean, he took a little phrase from a big book and pulled it out of its context, and then he applied it to Jesus. I mean, I could do that. <laughs> you could make the, the Old Testament say anything you want it to say. And if you look back at the context, it doesn't look at all like it's talking about Jesus when you first look at it. But before we dismiss Matthew too quickly as a bad Bible student or a poor prophet, we need to pause for a moment and think about what he is doing here. When Matthew wrote his gospel and he punctuates his gospel with more Old Testament references than any other gospel, he couldn't say, turn to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, because there was no Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. All Matthew had was a scroll, and that scroll had an uninterrupted flow of text. And so when New Testament writers wanted to cite something in the Old Testament, they would grab a portion of the passage, and they would quote it. And that functions just like what you and I do today. If we say, hey, go read Hosea chapter 11, not just that little phrase, but the passage. Read around that passage, Matthew is saying, because if you read around that passage, you'll find there themes and ideas that I'm actually picking up on here and trying to help you understand. And so that's what we need to do. We need to go back to the prophet Hosea. And it's interesting, when you go back to Hosea chapter 11, which is where this little phrase com comes from, what you find there is a story about God's son. And it's interesting, it's one of the, the special passages in the Old Testament where God speaks in the first person. It's a soliloquy. Remember that from your Shakespeare studies in eighth grade? A soliloquy, it's a first-person speech where God's sort of thinking out loud and he's inviting us to listen in on what he is thinking and in this case, what he's feeling. And there in Hosea chapter 11, it's a reflection on his son. Look how the story begins. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There's our little phrase. And you can see it's talking about the nation of Israel very clearly. And here in this passage, God begins to reminisce about his son. And he begins by remembering how in Exodus chapter 4, God had given instructions to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. 
and he, or to Moses what he was to say to Pharaoh. And he told Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my son go. Let my son go that he may serve me in the wilderness. See, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and I love him. And I want him to come out of his bondage in Egypt so that he can serve me, so that he can worship me and we can have fellowship together. And then his, God's reflections continue. It's almost as if now he pulls out the old home movies and he says to his son, hey, do you remember this one? When you were a child, I taught you, Ephraim, how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. Ephraim is often used as a synonym for Israel, but in many places, and I think here, it's, it's more than just another name for Israel. It's almost like a nickname. It's a term of endearment. You've probably done this with your children if you have children, or you've certainly done it with your pets. If you have pets, you give them nicknames, right? Yeah, in our house, we had uh, Punkadoo and Bear Bear and Big Fella. And I won't tell you who's who, lest you embarrass them the next time you see them. But, but God here basically says, look, don't you remember it was I who taught you how to walk? And you remember when you fell down and stumbled how I picked you up by your arms and dusted you off and and put the bandages on your knees. And he goes on further in verse 4. I led them, he says, with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. Now here you can see the picture changes, right? It's not a father, but a farmer. And it's a farmer who doesn't just care for his children, but even for his animals. He says, I, I, I led you. I didn't drag you through the wilderness. I didn't drive you through the wilderness, but I led you with kindness and I eased your burdens. And I even stretched out my own hand. You can, you can picture God from heaven with the manna stretching out his own hand and bending down and feeding, feeding his flock. In Deuteronomy 31, there's another beautiful picture of God with his people in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 31, or De Deuteronomy 1, 31, he, he says, it's like we showed up at the beach on a hot day and the sand's too hot for your kids. And so he says, I picked you up and I carried you across the desert and protected you. It's a beautiful image. Children, have your parents ever done this? Pull out the slides or the pictures. Slides. You don't have slides. <laughs> we have slides. I just went through getting slides converted in our home, my, my childhood home. Uh, movies. Your parents take out the movies and they show you the movies and they say, don't you remember this? You remember this one? And parents, you know how when you do that, it stirs your heart, your affections for your children. You don't remember the sleepless nights and the, the stinky diapers, 
you're just warm towards your children as you have remembrances. And God here is just remembering with affection the love that he has for his son, even his firstborn son. But like any parent, not all the memories are sweet and innocent. And in verse 2, Hosea said, or God through Hosea says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, the false gods, and burning offerings to idols. And so as God is reflecting on his love for his son, he also remembers that his son is a rebellious son. He's a rebellious son. He laments over them in verse 7, My people are bent on turning away from me. It's like the more he moved toward them, the more they, they pulled back away from him. And you know, we might be tempted to think, okay, so you have a rebellious son. Who doesn't? It's not a big deal. But do you know what God's law says about a rebellious son? Deuteronomy 21. If you have a son who's rebellious and that son refuses to repent and to return, the elders are to take that son to the gate of the city and stone him to death. And do you know that the penalty for idolatry, even if you encourage others to make sacrifices to false gods, is exactly the same. It's death. To have a rebellious son is a family crisis of tremendous proportions. And so it's almost as if here God now has a terrible dilemma on his hands. He loves this son, and this rebellious son actually deserves death. His own justice, his own law demands that this son be put to death. And he does conclude that for a time there's going to be discipline for his people. In verse 5, he says, Assyria will be their king because they have refused to return to me, the Assyrian exile. But uh, God's soliloquy doesn't end there. He continues to sort of think out loud. And, and now as he does so, he reveals even more of his heart to us. Look at verse 8. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It's as if the curtain has been drawn back and we get to see into the very heart of God. And what do you see there? You see the broken heart of a parent for a rebellious child. You see a God who's grieving. At the core of his being, he is grieved by the prospect that he must bring judgment upon this child. The grieving heart of a parent who, in this case, you know, if, if, when, if our children rebel, we can always look back and think, well, there's reason for that because I failed them in different ways. But not in this case. God was constantly good and kind and caring 
and nothing but loving to them. And yet they rebelled against him. And his heart is broken. And verse 8 goes on. It's this sort of guttural cry from deep within. How could I give you up? How could I hand you over? How could I do it? How could I treat you like those cities in Sodom and Gomorrah? That's who Adma and Zeboim are. They were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's as if his inward parts, if we can speak of God that way, are turning over within him and he draws back. He just can't stand it that he would have to judge his son. If you have ever had a rebellious child, you, you actually feel what God is feeling here. You know what it's like to grieve with such depth that just guttural cries come out at times. The other place I think you see this in the Bible is with King David. Remember, King David had a rebellious son called Absalom, and that son was actually trying to kill David. That son had torn his family apart and had raised up a civil war against his own father. And do you remember what happened when David found out that his rebellious son had died? He just wept. Oh, my son. My son, Absalom. How I wish that I could have died in your place. That's the heart that is expressed here from God himself through the prophet Hosea. But he's not done yet. <laughs> he goes on in his soliloquy. And in verse 9, he explains himself. He says that I'm not going to destroy my people ultimately because I am not a man. I am the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. Now that verse is all messed up, isn't it? At least in my mind, that verse should say, I am the Holy One in your midst. And because I'm the Holy One who's in your midst, I will come in wrath. And I will judge and destroy you because my eyes are too pure even to look upon sin. Isn't that what holiness means? Not really. <laughs> holiness, it's defined perfectly here. Holiness means other. It means different. It's all the ways that God is not like us. Here, what marks his God-ishness is his capacity for love. One of the primary ways that God is not like us is in his reservoirs to love even those who've rebelled against him. See, we do, don't we think God is like us? At some point in our rebellion, because of our foolishness, he's just going to say, enough already. 
get out of my sight. I'm tired of it. But he is not a man. He is holy. And of him alone, it can truly be said that God is love. So what does all this have to do with Matthew's Christmas story? We see as Matthew has read the book of Hosea and that portion of Hosea, he sees another story of God's son unfolding before him. And he sees that in Jesus, the home movies are sort of now running in reverse. Matthew sees how Israel, God's son, was called out of bondage into, out of Egypt into the wilderness to be tested, only to fail the test and rebel. But now Jesus is going to be sent down to Egypt and brought back up out. And immediately in Matthew 4, we're tempted that Jesus is called into the wilderness to be tempted. Only this son will not fail the test there in the wilderness. He will pass the test. He will be carried through the wilderness by his father. He is the faithful son, replacing the rebellious son. And you know, all the, the pictures, the images of warm compassion that are described by God himself in Hosea come to their fullness in Jesus. Matthew sees that too. In Matthew 9, you remember Jesus looks out on the crowd of the people, and what are we told? His heart recoils within him, is stirred within him. His warm compassion is ignited in him. Because he looks out on the people and he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And then later in his ministry in Luke 13, he comes upon Jerusalem, the Son of God. And he sees the rebellion of the nation. And what does he do? He breaks down and weeps just like David did. Oh, Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem. You who reject the prophets including Hosea, how I longed like a mother hen to scoop you up in my arms and care for you. And this great heart of compassion will drive Jesus all the way down into the exile of the tomb. He's baptized by John in order to be identified with sinners. And you see, now at the cross, the heart of a father who says, I wish that I could die in your place, comes to its fullness. As God the Father in God the Son dies in the place of all his rebellious children for all eternity. And there you see at the cross, the prophet Hosea will be fulfilled because the father will give him up and he will hand him over and he will not withhold his wrath. But in that same moment, the heart of the father's love is fully expressed as he pours out his mercy 
upon every rebellious sinner who will come back to him. And so here we are, gathered up out of the bondage of Egypt in order that we might worship him in the wilderness. So did Matthew rip a phrase out of context and apply it to Jesus? Now Matthew actually listened carefully to what the prophet Hosea had to say. And he heard the story that God himself was telling about his son. And Matthew rightly sees how in Christ, God has now gathered up in his arms all those who would be brought into the circle of his warm compassion and kept safe there for all eternity. One of the Puritan writers, John Owen, put it this way, he loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us into covenant. And he loves us all the way into heaven. And that's our hope. So Lord, we pray that you, even today, would take us up into your arms of love. Pick us up because we have fallen. You have torn us that you might heal us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would carry us across the wilderness of this world into your love for all eternity and for Jesus' sake. Amen.